0: Welcome to the Love Good Podcast, brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company. We're a movement of artists and patrons who believe in the power of beauty to evangelize our culture. And we're so pumped you're here. Welcome back, everybody, to our fourth and final installment in this C.S. Lewis bonus series, co hosted by Father Ryan Adorjan, the official, unofficial, official Love Good Chaplain. What a joy. He's come down from Chicago. I shouldn't say that. He's come down from. Joliet. 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 I Beautiful always do that. city of the Blues Brothers. I always want to say Hinsdale because that's where we spend most of our time. But Juliet, no. soon, soon to be cathedral. in Aprilville. that's right. Yeah, soon to be in Naperville. And enjoying, obviously, a beautiful, beautiful summer here in Palm Harbor, outside of Tampa, Florida. And diving into what I believe are some of the most important books of the last century. Certainly, some of the most important works of C.S. Lewis himself. And this final one that we're going to talk about today, The Great Divorce, is, again, my favorite of all of his books and one of my favorite of all time. One that really has opened my eyes year after year as I reread it, as I catch excerpts, as other people are reading it. Open my eyes to just the reality of eternity and the hope that I have, that we all have deep down in us for heaven and what it really takes to arrive at the reality of heaven. The Sometimes the, the pain and the detachment that it takes to even be prepared for the eternal glory The beauty that awaits us in heaven. So, this is going to be a really fun conversation in just a moment. Again, I'll be back with Father Ryan. Until then, enjoy this beautiful little excerpt of Give It Up from Michelle Mandico off of her EP, Half Captive. Ryan endors hello back, thank you. It's great to see you, likewise, we've come to the end of our of our road here. This is the most relaxed I've ever felt recording podcasts with you. I think it has a lot to do with the environment, the fact that uh, we're in Florida, I think, but maybe it's also it just feels low pressure to me. It's a bonus series. We're having fun talking about something we both really love, which is the the writings of c.s. Lewis. Years of friendship forged. At times, in studios, recording podcasts. For sure. Uh, it's never been quite this easy or this fun, so thanks. Are we more mature now? I doubt and it. And less prone to panic? Maybe. That could be part of it. You know what else is great? One of the, the real growth areas for me this past year. Since working, you know, in this new environment at an all-boys Catholic high school in Tampa, for some reason, I care a lot less about what people think. I used to be kind of dominated obsessed with human respect yeah which is a real vice i mean that's a real struggle when everything you're always doing is somehow you know only being done or only being sort of i suppose cared for if and only if it's you know garnering respect from others that's my very long-winded way of saying i i've worried too much about what people think and there's a freedom not in not caring but not being so attached. And that actually is one of the great fruits of reading this book for the first time 15 years ago. Tell me. Holy detachment. It's all over this thing. Yeah. Can we just dive right into it? Let's get it. We've only got 25, 30 minutes. We might as well dive straight into it. We've had enough banter over the last month. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The great divorce. I mean, the opening line is, of course, so beautiful. It might even be in the prelude or whatever they would call that, the the preface. You know, there, there is no marriage. There is no even crossover between heaven and hell but only a great divorce. No Venn diagram. No Venn diagram whatsoever. And you know, it's interesting because I don't think it's here, but elsewhere he talks about, C.S. Lewis talks about that beautiful truth that eternity begins now, which means we're already living heaven or we're already living hell based on the orientation of our lives, the orientation of our souls, right? So to say that there is in fact a great divorce, no marriage even possible, no mixing or mingling whatsoever between heaven and hell to me implies that actually there's an invitation and opportunity here and now to live heaven in all of its joy, and all of its glory. Doesn't mean it's going to be without pain yet. Doesn't mean that there's not going to still be incredible strife and struggle every step of the way, but that I can tap into that eternal joy in the here and now. I mean, this book is ultimately a bit of a journey through purgatory and heaven. I don't remember. Does it begin anywhere in hell? Can we catch Well, a glimpse? yeah, it begins... Um... In the gray town, that's right, and uh, you got like Napoleon, right, making his <laughs> march across the mansion, exactly, back, and forward, exactly, back and yeah, forward.
1: exactly. So uh, then it's revealed later that the place is either purgatory or hell, depending on whether a person stays there or not, whether they're invited up. So remember, this is a preface that C.S. Lewis was not Catholic, right? So not everything is we don't agree with everything right but that doesn't mean that it's not worthy of consideration at least this would be coming up more if we were reading like the problem of pain for example Mm -hmm. where he has some very interesting ideas about adam and eve and things that we would almost agree with interesting but we don't totally give the the catholic position doesn't totally ascend to Mm -hmm. things that the anglican communion would so that's a little prelude. Sure. Uh, there's a great book called C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. I think it's also by Joseph Pierce, who, who we quoted earlier. Kind of looking at C.S. Lewis's relationship with the Catholic Church. There are some people who say he was a secret Jesuit. <laughs> I don't think he
0: was. What does that mean? Why would they say that?
1: I don't know. I don't know. That's a just a conspiracy Jesuit? theory. Um, then there's some people who think that he he was secretly Catholic but never told anybody. He's more Catholic than most Catholics, I would say, in his thinking, but not everything that he says is, is quite right. He's either a very Protestant Catholic or he's a very Catholic Protestant, <laughs> and I think probably the <laughs> latter is, is more true. Yeah.
0: So that was just a little, uh, uh, by the way, so please yeah. continue. No, I, 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 we're journeying with this one particular soul, right? There's a bus. Is he ever named? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I don't, I don't remember at all. Dave. Dave. Um, Let's go with Dave. And there's two or three encounters as as he's moving through purgatory, as he's looking in other people's critical moments of decision, right? I'm thinking about the mom who is unwilling to go anywhere near the gate of heaven unless she is greeted by her son, who I think, you know, had gone before her in in death. She refuses. There's such an attachment to something as good and right and true about her own motherhood, but in a way that doesn't actually leave room for God himself to to be her primary attachment, to be her primary love. Right. Yeah. There's obviously the the famous back and forth, you know, with the soul who, who's got the lizard on his shoulder, mm. which we don't really know if C.S. Lewis meant that to be a, a bit of an allegory or, or an analogy for, for loss, but it's been often used. And I think held held up as a, a beautiful example of what it looks like to, to finally just let the Lord win that battle, right? And to win that war. And then for the lizard to turn into, I don't know if it was a white stallion, but a beautiful horse as it marches off into the mountains, right? That even our wounds, our brokenness, our sin can be transformed by grace and then turned into the very means by which God not only saves us, but that we can storm heaven, you know? Remember that
1: question from the beginning?
0: What question? How have you suffered? Yes. How have you suffered? That's right
1: the wounds can become the vehicle to glory.
0: Mm -hmm. It's awesome if you Mm -hmm. let them. The other thing that really stands out, I'm just remembering having read this a few years ago, most recently, the blades of grass. Yep. That actually heaven is the really real. That we're sort of living in a, you know, a a ghost-like reality up until that point. And everything is in full color. Everything is way harder and way more real than anything we're used to. To the point where the, the blades of grass hurt, yeah. right? The feet of the the new souls as they're as they're working their way through. But I would say holy detachment has perhaps been the great lesson learned from this book over and over and over again. I first read it December of two thousand six. My gosh! Right, I was three and a half months into studying abroad. I had just come off of my last trip, which was skiing in the Swiss Alps with one of my best friends at the time, spoiled brat that I was. Right loving every minute of it. This is the season of life where I began going to mass every day. I began praying a rosary every day. For whatever reason, my faith was just on the rise for those three or four months in a very profound way. And then I had an Anglican professor at Vanderbilt who before I left to study abroad gave me a list of must reads, books that I needed to read specifically in the native countries of the authors who wrote them. So most of them were British authors because I was studying in London. A lot of Chesterton, a lot of Lewis, a little bit of Vinokin. He's mm. American, but has a series of letters between him and C.S. Lewis and a book called Severe Mercy. Everyone must read it. I agree. We could do a whole summer, a whole bonus series just on that one book. I love that book. So much going on there. And then you know there's a sequel, by the way. Oh, yeah. you've read that too? Yeah. I'm trying to get under my, the mercy. I'm trying to I get think. my copy back. I gave my copy to Matt Wirtz at the end of a podcast recording about a year and a half ago and uh, I'm working on getting it back. It's got loads of underlines, annotations, notes in the margins. I must get that back. But I'm telling you, that book is even almost better for me, just because there's some essays there that really, really jumped out at me. Anyway, anyways, C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, reading it over the Atlantic Ocean as I'm returning home after three and a half months abroad. I didn't watch any movies. I hardly ate any meals. I just tuned into this book, started reading it, couldn't put it down for four or five hours. Forever shapes my imagination and my my longing for heaven. What's your relationship with this book? What are the moments that really stand out to you when you read it? I don't know, first time, second time, only I read time? the
1: first time right after I read Mere Christianity for my second attempt on that book. And then I became like, that was when I thought, oh man, C.S. Lewis is somebody I need to be reading. So I read this book just like you. On one day I was at a retreat. I sat in the corner of my room in my comfy chair all day and I read the book and it was amazing. And the first time I read it, it was all about, I read a book in one day. <laughs> so yeah, that, that same kind of attitude of, wow, like that commands respect. I'm going to tell everyone so that I read this book in one day. And then- It's not a short
0: book, but it's also not a long book. As no, well.
1: and what's captivating about the book is that your whole, the whole time you're reading it, you're like, all right, okay, well, that one's that, yeah. that person, that's not me. Next person, that's not me. So I can't wait to get to me. You know what I mean? Like like the one that really resonates with me. And of course, I'm Dave and I'm going to end up in heaven, right? Duh. But then I think, you know, he puts in hell that the Anglican bishop is in hell. He puts all these people there and you realize I'm everyone (laughs) Mm. and I'm, I'm actually no one. And what is the great lesson of the book is that you're right, that sometimes we think, you know, we have our whole life to decide. And then at the moment of death, then we we kind of unsure, really uncertain yet about what the outcome will be. We, we present our lump sum like at Chuck E. Cheese or something. You, you go at the end of your day, here are all my tickets. God, you count up the tickets. You let me know. Do I qualify just for a sticker or do I qualify for the big 50 pound teddy bear? Which one do I get? God, you get to tell me. And I'm so excited. And until this moment, it's unknown. And I'm gonna live life in heaven soon or not. Oh, you know. No, we tend to think about it in terms of like the the, the end result for ourselves will be will be quite surprising. Hmm. The thing about it though is that nobody wakes up in hell and is surprised to be there. So there's a great fear, I think, a lot of times, like oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to hell. I don't want to go to hell, but I'm going there and God doesn't love me and I, he's sending me away because of this, that, and the other thing. And I would just say that if you're really that concerned about that because of your deep love for God and your desire to do his will, and yet in your imperfection, you still sometimes behave in a way that's that's worldly and ungodly, like God is not going to be like, ooh, th- nice try, but, er, you know, down you go. And then the floor opens and the pit of fire and that's the end of you, you know. No one wakes up surprised to be in hell. Mm. Wow, heaven is really warm this time of year. Oh, wait, ah, (laughs) I'm in hell. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're
0: there because you chose to be there. And you were already living to some extent.
1: Uh, A hell hell on earth. A hell on earth. And that's exactly it. So the second point is that you begin to live that destiny even here, even now, that you can begin to live a a life of heaven here and you can begin to live the life of hell here. We said that, remember in that quote that Lewis ends mere Christianity with that, that if you don't give yourself away, you will live a life of hatred and loneliness and rage and despair. And we meet people like that, sparingly, I think, but we do meet people like that. And we feel ourselves, in fact, tempted toward those things, don't we, sometimes. And usually, when we take a step back, we really see, like, oof, yeah, I've really wandered. And I, the invitation is to come back. But then the people who live this sort of heavenly life are the people who have given away everything. So, I, when you were talking earlier about kind of that, that detachment, you know, Jesus says, the one who gives up fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and lands for my sake. We'll get them all back a hundredfold. Mm-hmm. You can't fake the hundredfold. You only receive the hundredfold if you've received if you've given it away. If you've given absolutely everything away, you receive everything back, but in a way that you can relate to it with freedom now. Mm. Anything that you can't give away, by the way, is not truly yours. <laughs> because you it you are its. It it, it is captivating mm. you. So th- that's the invitation, and the Lord In the Gospels, Jesus is just like, he's all over that because he understands that that is going to be a humongous obstacle for people to their role in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. If you don't give up your obsessions, if you don't give it up and say, Lord, I want you only. And if you want me to have this opportunity, this house, this friend, this person, this whatever, then I trust you to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But I want all of that only insofar as it's coming from you mm-hmm. and not because I'm hanging on to it. Yeah. So I think that yeah that that theme of detachment especially but that theme of of choice really that so many people it, you know well, how could a good god send someone to hell? Well, god doesn't send people to hell. God is so respectful of the freedom which he has given to us that if you have decided you don't want him, then he will not impose himself on you for all of eternity. Either that's right. exactly, exactly, you will get what you have asked him for, mm. and that I think is something that is really misunderstood. Mm. You will get what you ask him for, yeah. Which, in some ways, it reveals God's goodness, mm-hmm. but it's also—is it a downside to His goodness? I mean, I don't know. That's that's a deeper discussion, maybe, but but that's something that I think. C.S. Lewis would like the world today to understand yeah, is that this isn't some old man in the sky in a cardigan eating Werther's with his big gavel in his hand. You know, you don't get to God and he, and he says, what's your name again? Oh, okay. Let me check the file. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Nice to see you. Well, you've been really, ooh, <laughs> oh dear. You know what I mean? And it's not a, a meritocracy either. You've done 98 good things, but 99 bad things. So uh, great to see you, honestly, but down you go. And rules is rules, you know. Anyway, tell everybody hi, bye-bye, you know, and then down you go. So that's not it. And I, and I love The Great Divorce for that reason. That Dave, our, our protagonist, is sort of, although I think we could say he's not the protagonist of this particular book, Dave is the is the narrator of the book, and he begins to see that. Mm. That the stories of people... And their habitual either conversion or worship of self, worship of circumstance, worship of persons, worship of goods, whatever, is a lifelong construction, which has lifelong, literally, eternal lifelong
0: effects. Mm. That's great. You know, as you've been talking, one of the other images, or I should say, uh, descriptions of the souls in heaven that I always found really, really captivating in this book. He describes them as having mirth dancing in their eyes. Mm. Whenever our our friend Dave, the narrator, you know, comes across and encounters one of these souls, who's you know, I think helping these other souls through purgatory ultimately into heaven to find the mountains, right, and, and to chase after that that eternal glory, right, that awaits them. He always describes them as having mirth dancing in their eyes. Mirth is not a very American word. You don't no. hear that word very much. No. I think it is a very British word because I I do hear it over there sometimes. Joy. So, holy detachment, big, big standout for me in this book, but also joy. I think this is, in some ways, what Lewis somehow does best in every one of his books. He fills me with a longing for the joy of heaven. He does elevate my desires to where I would never want to settle for the mud pie in the slum. I want heaven. I want eternal joy, and for some reason, because I, I really got into Lewis about the same time I got into Benedict Sixteenth, I do associate much of their writings with each other. Yeah. So, in Space Solvi, you know, uh, this is really how the Sixteenth describes heaven. Not, not an unending succession of days in the calendar, but an infinite plunge into the depths of perfect joy. Who doesn't want mirth dancing in their eyes for all of eternity? Who doesn't want to taste that eternal joy and better yet be immersed in that eternal joy that we all long for?
1: Yeah. And who, when we meet someone
0: like that, do we not feel a little bit
1: um, jealous yes. in a way?
0: That's a great point. And I don't want really know that he gets into it in this book, but I suppose that has been a recent revelation for me that actually there are some people who reject Christ, they even reject you, because it's almost too good to be true. Yeah. They can't believe that that level of joy could ever be authentic. They can't believe that that level of, of kindness could ever be genuine.
1: Or that they themselves could ever be worthy of it.
0: Interesting. And they have to go away from you. Mm -hmm.
1: Because if they really knew you, you would look at them and say, ooh, wow, okay, taking some of that joy back. (laughs) taking some of that kindness back. Yeah. But that's not it at all. Maybe one thing to just point out is the importance of a companion Mm. on this journey. Companion is what Jesus is. Giussani calls Jesus God's companionship with the whole human race. And we see in some of these great sort of visions of hell, purgatory, and heaven. I'm thinking especially of Dante in the divine comedy. Dante has a companion in the person of Virgil, right? Mm-hmm. Who he hails as a great mentor, a great poet, the mm-hmm. greatest of the poets, Dante says to Virgil. And of course, they live a thousand years apart, more than that, but. Dante's so familiar with the work of Virgil that he's able to say, you've been my companion Mm. in my life. Bishop Barron always talks about when you have people, authors, theologians that you really love, he calls them his friends. These are my friends, even though they've been maybe dead for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So for Dave, our narrator, he was a writer in, in his life when he was alive on earth, and
0: he meets George MacDonald. In the Great Divorce, remember that? No, because I wouldn't have known George McDonald at the time. That's been a recent discovery. Yeah, and he hails—he
1: does it just like Dante. Yeah, he he meets McDonald. He he hails McDonald, McDonald, (laughs) McDonalds. Oh my gosh, MacDonald George McDonald as his mentor, (laughs) and McDonald becomes the narrator's guide
0: on the journey for the whole book. Not the whole book, but he he's the one who breaks open what's happening for Dave. Yeah, for Dave. See, and this is what's great. You can never read a book like this and and not see it through a new lens based on what you've learned since the last time you read it, how you've grown, how you've struggled, how you've suffered. But here is the
1: interesting thing oh. is that with the help of the narrator, uh, I'm sorry, of the companion, Dave the narrator is able to see something. Mm. He's then able to see that the gray town is in fact hell. Yeah. And that, indeed, what's there is not that much different from the life on earth Hmm. of these people. That the life in the gray town is uncomfortable.
0: It's lonely, friendless, I think Lewis says. I mean, many of these homes, there are mansions, but they're— Huge homes. Beautiful. Miles and miles and miles away from anybody else. Yeah. Total isolation. Yeah. Joyless.
1: And it goes on forever. And it doesn't get better, it gets worse and worse. Remember that? It just keeps decaying, and the town keeps decaying, and the life there, this the social order keeps collapsing. Whereas in heaven, it's the total opposite. Remember in Dante, when Dante's in the pit of hell, Dante describes it as freezing cold. Not hot, as we often say, but where the devil lives, he says, is freezing cold. Mm. That's very Thomistic, isn't it? That's very, well, it's philosophical, it's, it's platonic. But cold does not exist on its own it's the absence of heat yeah Dante says the pit of hell is dark well darkness doesn't exist it's simply the absence of light so everything in hell for Dante and we can see it playing out in this way for Lewis is is a is a lack it can only be described as what it is not
0: mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm.
1: so it, it just keeps decaying into something closer to non-existence right. Because God is existence himself. So you get closer to God and things, what? The grass becomes more tangible. The grass becomes perfectly colorful. It becomes hard. It's almost too hard to stand on. Mm. It's so real. Mm -hmm. And it's not fleeting away into nothingness. So that's something that I, I think is just as important to mention, that not only is there no comparison between heaven and hell. Actually, they're as different as they get mm. because they're ba- they're two totally different things, yeah. really. One of them is utter and complete fulfillment. As I said, I think in a, a couple conversations ago that Jesus said, I make all things new and new things are still new things. And so he makes even the new things new. Mm. So the life of heaven just keeps getting newer. And the life of hell, as Lewis says, in this gray town it just keeps going closer and closer into nothing. Yeah. It keeps decaying and getting worse and worse,
0: which just sounds miserable. Yeah. I can't imagine having to experience it. I mean, it'd be terrible. Yeah. I pray. So, Father Ryan, here's a question. We're wrapping up now our fourth week with C.S. Lewis. Our only long conversation about the great divorce that'll perhaps ever happen on the podcast. For me, the overarching thread is... We're not home yet. Nope. And that our entire lives are meant to be a sort of an aching and a journeying and a longing for the eternal joy of heaven, but also a, a glimpsing of that glory here and now. And I can see that across all the books we've talked about in this past month, this one in particular, but all of them. I feel like it's just all over Lewis. It's, you know, in part the reason that our friends over at Andrew Peterson and Company, The Rabbit Room our friends at the Rabbit Room. I feel that's their entire existence. It's sort of a riff off of this idea that we are not home yet. Every book, every work of art, every bit of music that comes out of that community of, of artists and friends has the same effect on me, you know? And I think it's what the world needs probably more than ever, especially when things can be so confusing or even so dark and despairing. One glimpse of hope and suddenly your entire life can be redirected, you know? Yeah. That's a a huge overarching thread for me. What is it for you now that you've got these last few conversations in hindsight? Are you familiar with the Irish goodbye? It's very
1: quick, right? Because the British are kind of slow and take their time. It's quick and unannounced. Yes. Bye. Disappeared. Father Ryan here? No, I think he might have (laughs) left. He did leave. He did the Irish goodbye. It's my favorite way to leave a place. Hello, nice to see you. Oh my gosh, woohoo. And then out of here I'm the opposite I'm going home I'm going home I want to go home and I'm slipping out I don't need the pomp I don't need the goodbye I don't need a goodbye song I don't need it I don't need a party (laughs) at the airport I don't need a big thing I need to go home you know this is the introvert of me I got I just got to get out of here Uh what day did C.S. Lewis die?
0: the same day the same day that JFK was assassinated
1: November 22nd 1963 yeah this great literary figure, this man who was known internationally, who was an apologist, a theologian, a philosopher, a teacher, a writer of some of the most well-known stories, a teacher at one of the most respected universities in the world, you would think that his death would garner some attention.
0: Hmm.
1: It didn't. Not really. Because, of course, the same day, as you said, John F. Kennedy was shot in Texas. mm which captivated the world for weeks.
0: Yeah.
1: And I can't, I can't help but think that C.S. Lewis, who taught us to yearn for home in almost everything that he wrote, from the very earliest sort of very introspective work, All My Road Before Me, that autobiography, all the way through his life, through his what I think the capstone of his work, The Chronicles of Narnia, a look at what home can be, all of his works, Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Screwtape Letters, What is home? What are some obstacles to home? What will home be like? What do we have to be like in order to live home now? That, as you said, is such a huge theme. And I really think that he was just like, happy to just peace out. (laughs) Bye. I'm going there. I'm going there. You know, in this greatness and excitement. That was also the same day that... uh, Sacra Santa Concilium was released. No way. Yeah. From the Second Vatican Council, which had been meeting at the time.
0: Wow.
1: So a big day. And C.S. Lewis, at the end of his life, congratulations, man. Hmm. I hope to imitate in some way that level of an Irish
0: goodbye.
1: (laughs) You know? I just want to go home. And you can see that in all of his writing. I just want to go home. And I believe in the one who will get me there. Mm. I know the one in whom I believed and I trust that he's going to get me there. Mm. And so in the most classic C.S. Lewis way possible, he looked at the
0: world and he literally just was like, bye. Yeah. Beautiful. I just want to go home and I believe in the one who will get me there. That's a great way to end the series, Father Ryan. Thanks for this. Thank you for your time, your diligence. You you said you weren't very well prepared on, on episode one, but you have been Killing it. And you're looking at notes. There's some level of preparation across this table. I guess so. So grateful for that. Our patrons, our listeners are so grateful for that. And we'll have you back for season six. Can't wait. And there's so much more to come. We'll have you on probably once every three or four weeks. My goodness. Throughout season six. But I'm really glad we could just pause, take a little break in between the usual nonstop, you know, plowing through a season of the podcast and just revel in the greatness, but also the meekness of the man that was C.S. Lewis. And hopefully we'll get to do something like this again one day soon.
1: As C.S. Lewis would say at the end of his life,
0: bye. Bye-bye.
1: He fell in love and
0: told her because the petals he saw But most of all, he loved the song she sang
1: change the world. It's a funny thing, but I might give it a whirl. I could start today. I know right where to begin. I don't know everything, but I've got a little faith and I've heard that's all. I've heard that's all it takes till tomorrow. You can start again.
0: You're listening to Start Again by Stephen Day from our exclusive Fireside Sessions available only on YouTube. Let's go to youtube.com slash lovegoodculture and check it out. Thanks to everybody for tuning in this very special bonus series with Father Ryan Adorjian as we dived into some of the greatest moments and the greatest sort of works that were C.S. Lewis, that were his life and his, his legacy. Brilliant man that he was, a humble man that he was, reminding all of us to never stop longing for heaven, our true homeland. And uh, I've just found this to be incredibly enjoyable and edifying myself Well, Father Ryan on quite a bit throughout season six. It's gonna be a, a bit of a quicker season than any one we've had. I believe it's gonna be about 15 episodes. You're gonna hear from him about once every three weeks moving forward. Lots of exciting stuff to come. Also with Dr. Ryan Hanning and Marisol Alisay. It's gonna be a really, really fun season six. And the last thing I'll say is this, a massive, massive and kind of final invitation here to go to lovegoodculture.com slash store where everything is on sale, deeper discounts than ever before. We're calling this the Everything Must Go sale. Music, books, artwork, vinyl records, apparel, merchandise, mason jars, you name it. It is waiting for you at the deepest discount Lovegoodculture.com slash store. Check it out and uh, join us next week as we sit down for the beginning of season six of the Love Good Podcast. We uh, really appreciate you guys tuning in as always. Have an amazing continuation of your summer. We'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Love Good Podcast. Share this episode link on social media, leave us a review and join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. You'll start enjoying our premium content and seasonal packages that not only raise your standard for music, books, and art, but that also inspire you to evangelize culture through beauty. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.